is a strange one-dimensional uh, piece of information to use, given that you know people are multi-dimensional. episode of Diversity on Fire. This is your host, Heather. We are on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. Joining the conversation today is Dr. Peter Huang. Dr. Huang is a highly educated professor who has done extensive work in mathematical economics, law, and education, specifically surrounding the complex issue of racism and its effects. He has also recently published his book titled Disrupting Racism, Essays by an Asian American Prodigy Professor. Welcome to the show, Dr. Huang. Thank you, Heather. I'm very happy to be here. I am happy to have you. Your research and your expertise falls right in line with what we we like to talk about. Before we dig in, I do always like to start with a little bit of some personal information. So I'd love it if you'd share a little bit about what I like to call your origin story. So starting off from when you were young, you actually have what I think a lot of people would consider a very unique experience graduating from Princeton when you were only 17. So would you share with us a bit about your upbringing and what shaped you as the person you are today? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, As you said, I went to Princeton I actually went when I was 14 and finished in three years uh, because I didn't particularly like taking a bus for an hour and a half from New York City to Princeton um, on a daily basis. It was very tiring, but I learned how to study on a bus. Um, How did this come about? So my backstory is I went to a public school, PS183, which had very good teachers. In fact, when uh, the teachers went on strike in the New York City public school system, they kept on working. So that was from uh, K to six. And when I started uh, seventh grade, my my mother uh, wanted me to go to Brearley and called them. And they said, your son can't come. And she goes, why? Because he's Chinese? They said, no, because this is a girl's school and your son is a boy. Um, so I uh, ended up at Horace Mann in Riverdale. And in eighth grade, I had a crush on my algebra teacher. I would write her poems and sign the Mitliba with love because I was taking German. I would um, draw a heart in, uh, and write the equation for a heart in polar coordinates for Valentine's Day. And she did not say anything. She just put up with this, you know, I think harmless infatuation. She had graduated from Columbia Teachers College recently, but I chose her as my advisor. So one day my mother found out I was doing this because she said, uh, what are you writing? I said, I'm doing homework and I didn't want her to see it. So of course she wanted to see it. And I was writing like a love note to my algebra teacher. And my mother said, I sent you to Harsman because it's a boy's school. So you won't be distracted by girls. And your um, advisor is this woman and she didn't mention it. So I find that very distressing. So at the end of eighth grade, she took me to New York University, Quran Institute of Mathematical Sciences. She's a professor at New York University Medical School in Biochemistry. She still is at 93. But uh, yes, which is shocking. She's still doing research. She doesn't teach. Um, as long as she does research, you know, gets grant money from NIH and so forth, I think she'll be there. So she told the math chairman I was good in math and um, that I should take calculus and pre-calculus. And he said, why don't we let your son audit these two classes in the first six-week session, which I did. And both of the professors wrote, to whom it may concern, 
Peter Wang was in the class, did all the homework, asked you know questions, and um, got hundreds in the exam. So he would have gotten an A had he taken the class for credit. So then I was allowed to take Calc 2, which I did get an A. So when I came back to my ninth grade at Harsman, there was no more math for me to take. So my mother's mission to make sure I had no contact with this teacher was accomplished. And that fall, she said, I think you should apply to college. And not knowing him better, I said, oh, okay. So I applied to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, and NYU. Had I gone to NYU, I would have gotten tuition remission because she's a faculty member, so it would have been free. I'd taken, by this time, a number of uh, math and economics classes at NYU. So I could have graduated in two years. Uh, But she wanted me to go to an Ivy League school since I was in first grade. She bought me these book covers that were Ivy League book covers. And she goes, there's eight schools, namely Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and five others. So, um, yeah, so that's that's my life story, how it started, at least. That's the origin story. Wow. Okay. And I love that your mom is still getting at it at 93 and working. I saw somewhere, and I'd like to just ask, this is a little bit of an aside, but I saw somewhere your mom referenced as a tiger mom. First of all, when I hear that term, I don't think it's something that I would use because I associate it a little bit with it's it's a stereotype. And I'm not sure that I I don't feel like it's necessarily appropriate for me to use, but it's certainly common. How do you feel about that term? Well, I actually wrote an article about my being raised by my mother and uh, someone uh, who was a colleague at uh, Penn was visiting Yale Law School, and she gave it to Amy Twa, who thought it was delightful and funny. And um, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, I've had people say to me, I don't know what Tiger Mom means. Other people say immediately they know what Tiger Mom means. So um, I, I think Tiger Mom just refers to a certain type of parent who's very invested in their child's education and who... Uh, has very high standards and in some sense um, pushes, if that's the right word, encourages their child to study hard and views your grade as a function of or the output from the inputs of study. So if you get a low grade, it's not because uh, of anything except your laziness or lack of willingness to study. Isn't this the fun thing about language is that the definition can be one thing, and then the kind of modification of it by society can completely take it in a different direction. As far as the extensive work that you've done, I am really excited for you to share some of that information with us. So on this show, we share stories with people from all different races and cultures. And obviously, based on that, um, your your work really really plays a big part in what we're trying to do, but obviously you have an academic understanding of it. What have you found when you're thinking about, or when in your research and in your opinion, some of the most salient root causes are for racism and discrimination, maybe racism specifically? Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent question. When um, George Floyd was murdered, my partner said to me, why don't you write something about racism instead of all this securities regulation insider trading stuff you write? And I said, um, okay. So I looked in the literature about racism, what lawyers, law, law professors, economists had written. And it was very interesting to me that 
at least in legal scholarship, there's a lot of talk about implicit racism, which is the idea that people have these unconscious biases. Uh, if they take these uh, implicit attitude tests, they have a negative view of um, black people or old people or people who are handicapped. And one of the criticisms of the literature is an implicit bias is not illegal. It's like what people are thinking in their brain. And unless we're in the world of minority report where people can be arrested for thought crimes, it's actions that we care about. And so I read this literature and I thought this is very puzzling literature because it's trying to say racism, it's it's basically racism without racists, right? It's It's people have these subconscious thoughts and they cannot be held responsible for them or blamed for them. And everyone has them. And it seemed to me a very uh, strange way of thinking about racism. And then the literature on discrimination in economics is also, I think, strange to uh, think about because it talks about how in labor markets, you don't know someone's productivity, but you can use many characteristics of that person to try to form a conditional, probably condition on their being white or condition on their being Chinese. I believe they're going to be better at math. Uh, condition on they're going to Princeton. I think they're going to be better at math. So the idea is that people are doing some sort of statistical sampling um, where they're interested in people's productivity, um, which they can observe later with some noise. And they use these signals like education, Signals are basically defined to be things that are observable that you can change. Uh, ability is an example of something that's unobservable and you can't really change. It's given to you. And then race, like sex, is defined to be an index. It's something that is observable but unalterable. So the idea is the index, nowadays people can't change their um, gender, but when this was written by Michael Spence in 1973, the idea was... Um, people form these conditional probability distributions based, and, and they're different ones, based on whether you're of a certain ethnicity or the color in your skin. And I think that's to some extent perhaps true. Spence, in part, won the Nobel Prize for this in economics. And and I remember saying to my advisor, you know, why don't, why didn't Spence study the property of these equilibria? Like if they're stable, if you can converge to them, if you have the wrong beliefs, um, he goes, uh, it's a difficult problem mathematically. And he was right. So I thought that was a call to action and I worked on it. And and then I didn't return until my partner had said this to me, like, you know, what do you think about racism? What is the literature, you know, in psychology, economics, behavioral economics say about racism? And I said, racism is basically mistaken beliefs. You believe people are able to do something or unable to do something or will do something or won't do something based on just seeing their race seeing the amount of melaton in their skin, which is a strange one-dimensional uh, piece of information to use, given that you know people are multidimensional. You know that there are people of every race, every ethnicity, of every gender who are exemplars of humanity, and also the same holds true for people who are maybe negative exemplars, right? So it's weird that you think a single dimension, a single piece of information can tell you all about a person. And I said, if you think about this mathematically, which is not the way I think most people do, but it's sort of my natural way to think about things, then the way to correct racism is to give people exposure to revise their beliefs. 
And in, sen- in a sense, people who are racist or sexist or whatever is you want that's not favorable, they actually don't want contact with that group because they think that group is not worthy of their contact or somehow they don't think there's anything to be gained. So one thing to do is if you have people work in teams where they actually benefit from someone who they thought was uh, not helpful, that makes them revise their beliefs, hopefully. Now, obviously, if you have, you start out with a probability zero on something, when you update, you actually have, um, um, if you use Bayes' formula, which is a statistical theorem about how to take uh, prior beliefs and convert them into posterior beliefs, conditional signals, you're going to be ending up dividing by zero. So you don't, you want people to not be so racist, they don't even think there's a chance the person could be smart or helpful or whatever. You you want them to have some small belief, and that's enough to perhaps get them to learn. And so that's how I started getting interested in writing about racism. I wrote several articles and then talked to some people. And they said, you should write a book about this because the articles are only read by law students and law professors, but your um, work has a much broader audience if you're thinking about strategies to disrupt racism, hopefully end racism, but at least interrupt it so that it doesn't become as uh, polarized a society as some people think we have now. So, so much here. What you're saying is, it's what I believe 100%. And the way I, it, just to distill it down in, in terms of how I hear what you're saying is it's, it's like racism is this idea, uh, illogical belief that is illogical because it tries to portray a person based on a singular or maybe a handful of characteristics as opposed to looking at them as a holistic being. Boy, is that true. (laughs) It's so wild. And immersion is something that has come up a lot in terms of because you, you use the word exposure, but immersion, exposure, just one of the biggest challenges that I see is that we have these stereotypes. And there are millions of people on this earth, billions probably, that are walking around that don't fit that stereotype. But we see one person that in our life that fits that stereotype and that confirmation bias is so sticky and it's so strong that all of a sudden we don't need any more information. It's this idea that once you see it once, you already you don't need any more. When you're thinking about racism, what do you see as the biggest impacts on marginalized communities? And maybe just society as a whole, but mostly the marginalized communities, when they're being uh, discriminated against or victims of racism, what do you see as the biggest impact? Well, I like the way you phrase it. I I think the biggest impact on people who are the victims of racism or discrimination is that they're not being judged as individuals. They're being judged by the color of their skin or their gender, something that they may have had no control over. And people are so multidimensional and so rich in their characteristics and their views and histories to look at just one variable and dismiss a person or to say, I know everything I need to know about you seems very strange to someone who uh, thinks about the idea that more information is better, especially if it's low cost or free. So 
you know, seeing someone's skin color doesn't tell you anything or very little. On the other hand, the fact that people who were black were slaves, or the fact that some Chinese immigrants were involved in building the Transcontinental Railroad, and they often lowered Chinese men in a basket with TNT when TNT was still very um, novel. And the phrase, a Chinaman's chance in hell, comes from that process where the probability of you blowing up as a person with dynamite in your little basket as you're lowered is very high. So there's very little chance to survive. Yeah, I think a lot of, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of people have these stereotypes, partly because I think media, it's around in popular culture. But if you think about it, kids are not neither racist nor sexist. Kids will play with anyone who wants to play with them. So at some point, kids are taught racism, like in that uh, that movie, um, you know, by Hammerstein and then Rogers, the uh, uh, South Pacific, where there's a song in there about how when you're very young, your parents at some point, like when you're seven or eight, teach you that people who don't look like you, you should not associate with. And, and that sticks, right? So if racism can be learned as it is, then presumably you can unlearn it with other, I use the word exposure, um, but I think really statistical sampling with other contact with people who you might uh, have negative beliefs about. The problem is left to your own devices because of your negative beliefs, you might not seek them out. And so, you know, there's examples of occupational exclusion, like some people of a certain ethnicity or race or gender were not thought to be able to do something. But then someone hired a black baseball player or football player and they could play. So uh, one idea is that competitive markets should um, take care of this. The problem with that idea is the beliefs, like you mentioned, are often very resistant. They're very stubborn or sticky. When people get disconfirming data, most people are very clever. They will find some reason to ignore the disconfirming data unless it's so overwhelming they have no choice. Or someone might say, I, I don't believe in this anymore, but since my partner does or my kids do, I don't want to be ostracized by my loved ones or family. And so I think, you know, I mentioned several strategies. One is to use humor to talk about racism so it doesn't seem so emotionally charged. And that's why I think when I was a kid, Star Trek had these episodes with people from other planets, like one was half black, half white, and the other was the other way around, and they hated each other. And But that was really an allegory about race. But because it was about the future and about aliens, we could, you know, sort of laugh at these people or say how silly this is. And in some sense, you can try to create incentives for people to have interaction. You can also try to have people talk to each other and understand other people's backgrounds and exchange perspectives. There are several approaches. And I think it's important because even though racism has been a a problem ever since people existed, now we face global climate catastrophe. And if we don't do something about it, and we need to work together, and drilling a hole in a lifeboat on the other side is actually not a good idea because we only have one planet. And if you don't take into account the effects that humanity has on the planet, then the planet may not be livable in the future. When I hear this and I think about the resistance, I I think about the resistance a lot because I, as a human, I see such value in a coming together. But I can also recognize that we don't want to come together and be, you know, some blob of of clay where we're all the same. 
uh, respecting differences, honoring differences, but not diminishing someone because of the differences is really the goal. So when we're looking at that, one of the challenges that I recognize in my own opinion as being one of the hardest to overcome is that it takes effort. Because as you say, we learn oftentimes from a very young age, um, whether explicitly or we just witness things that teach us these lessons and how to behave. They're so deeply embedded in humanity and even in the systems that we live in. So when we think about this, do you have ideas on how to call in members of our society that either insist, which arguably, I don't know how they insist that it doesn't occur. We have social media that puts it in our face all the time, but insist that either there isn't an issue or they simply don't care to make the effort to help change themselves. Yeah, that's another excellent question. Um, I think part of the reason racism has persisted for so long is that people's beliefs, people can be very stubborn. Um, I read someplace where someone said, sometimes people view their beliefs like their children. So if you attack their beliefs, it's like you're attacking their kids and, and, or ideas, right? Beliefs are kind of ideas. So like if I go to a seminar and a professor is talking and I attack his paper, he might take it very personally because he might say, that's my idea. You know, you're, you're, you're demolishing it. And, and so this metaphor of um, ideas of belief being prized possessions, I think is a, a, a good one because as you say, people may hold on to wrong beliefs even if they know or suspect they're wrong for a number of reasons. So there's some recent work by a couple of behavioral economists, one at Carnegie Mellon, George Lowenstein, and one at the uh, University of Chicago Business School, Andres Molinaire. So they talk about how information acquisition is motivated not just by what economists and lawyers and decision theorists think, which is we were taught, I was taught, information is valuable if it helps you make a better decision. And if it's free, you should get the information. If the information is low cost, then having it is better than not having it. If it's too expensive, you don't want to know it. Why would you ignore um, information that's free? So my partner mentioned this example, which is a good one, which is a lot of people will take a test for HIV or take a test for breast cancer, and they will not go pick up the result. So it's free at that point, or their insurance paid for the test anyway. But if they don't get the result, they can daydream about the fact that they are not a cancer victim. But if they get the result, it's no more um, uncertainty. So information has positive and negative val valence, not just decision-making benefits. So people have emotional reactions to information. Um, there's also the idea that information affects your identity. So if you... Uh, think of a certain way, and there's possibly you'll learn something that will shake your thinking to its roots. Most people don't want to have that information. And so they will avoid that information at almost any cost because their identity is threatened by the information. So I think this is a very powerful theory of why people seek out or the negative of that, avoid information. And truth seeking may not be the only rationale for information, right? There are people who think the earth is flat, right? Some of them very uh, wealthy National Basketball Association players, right? Or there are people who buy lottery tickets, some poor, but some also very wealthy. You know, they have these beliefs that they're going to win. 
but they also don't believe they'll hit, be hit by lightning, which is the same sort of probability, right? And so beliefs are a strange thing because they're in your head, so people can't observe them. You can lie or misstate your beliefs. Your beliefs are things you don't necessarily examine consciously. You just have them and you go on with your life until something contradicts your belief. And you may know, I want to avoid certain things that may upset my belief for either identity reasons, my happiness, or I just don't want to know because it could make my life more complicated. So I think you're absolutely right to say that changing beliefs is difficult. That's why humor might be one way. I forget who said this. I think the guy who did uh, the movie Super Size Me, he said, if we can get people to laugh, you can get people to listen. I think that's true. Um, so it's a non-threatening w- way to discuss some of these issues. And the other is that the people work together in teams. Another is just to um, teach people about having conversations, which there's a woman at Harvard Business School who's doing sort of to talk in a way that facilitates active listening. Uh, we're often educated to, to be very good um, speaker, but not so good listeners. And I think there's a number of ways that um, we can try to encourage people to interact with people who they think are the other different from themselves, right? When I think about racism, first of all, I, I think all those are great ideas. The I love humor. I'm very quirky and probably inappropriate in my humor, which is why I probably tend to use it less because I don't want to I don't want to over overstep my bounds there. But when we think of racism, one thing that or one area is Asian American discrimination. I think that has in my opinion, in my experience, flown under the radar a little bit. Not that it hasn't existed, but it hasn't really been at the forefront. And that's definitely notched up quite a bit in in recent years. I'm wondering if you could share with us what your experience as a member of the Asian American community, um, what your experience has been, and then your thoughts on how that manifests so that people listening might get a better idea of what's going on. Sure. I think before George Floyd, I tried to deny that racism was as prevalent or as rampant, right? So like you say, Asian Americans are in some sense often associated with Caucasians, like the Harvard Affirmative Action case, right? The idea is um, people, the stereotypes people have of Asian Americans sometimes, like you're good at math or you're smart, you study. They're not necessarily negative, but they're still stereotypes, I grew up where people would say, oh, no wonder you're good at math, you're Chinese. But that robs me of any agency and the fact that I studied. It was just, I'm Chinese, I'm good at math. And I know Chinese people who are not good at math. And I know non-Chinese people who are good at math. But the other thing is, I think, again, sort of thinking about categories and not individuals is what racism does. It's really commodifying people. And, and, And I was thinking about some experiences I had as a kid where people would call me names. You know, children are... Uh, or can be cruel. But I remember uh, growing up, my parents would say to me, sticks and stones can break your bones, but names and whatever, you know, that nursery rhyme is. And so we were sort of taught to ignore racial epithets because there was nothing to come out of fighting with someone about it or calling someone else a name or challenging them. And I think that's a very common Asian response to put your head down, to not cause trouble, to um, double up on your efforts to to study harder. I remember there was a lot of controversy about Andrew 
Tang's idea that um, during uh, COVID we should prove our patriotism that we, you know Chinese people are Americans, Asian Americans. And I remember my brother. I have two younger brothers. They're both um, MDs. One is a concierge cardiologist. And he said, you know, there were times when patients would say, "I don't want you to touch me because you're Chinese. You're the reason we have COVID." And so, you know, he would say, "Okay." And I asked my students when I was teaching a class in leadership and lawyers, I said, "Would you be okay with someone saying to you, 'I don't want you as a lawyer because you're of a certain race'?" And they said, "But that's the right of the client." I said, "Yes." I said, "How about they say, 'I don't want you as a lawyer because you're a woman'?" People were sort of a little bit more divided about that, right? The men and the women. Um, but they went back to this idea of consumer sovereignty, right? That a patient or a client can choose whoever they want. Um, they can say, "I don't want a Catholic doctor. I don't want a uh, math-loving uh, teacher or something." Um, I said, "But can the professor or the doctor or the lawyer say that about? I don't want to teach people who are a certain color or whatever." They said, "No, that's not right." I said, "But why is there that symmetry?" They go, "Well, it's a market, and and the and the buyer." It should have this uh, ability to choose who they interact with. I said, but that could lead to discrimination and occupational exclusion. And they go, yeah, but you know, over time that'll take care of itself. I said, how? How is that magically going to happen? Right. So they have this belief in some sort of corrective force um, that capitalism has that through profit seeking um, discrimination will go away. Um, and I said, sometimes if you have clients who are Racist or sexist, it may be profitable to cater to these people, so that just perpetuates the racism or sexism. I remember I went with my partner to go eat a buffet in South New Jersey. So we, the parking lot was pretty full, so I parked next to a pickup truck. And in my hurry to get to the buffet, I opened my door and hit the other car, the passenger side. And my partners always said this to my to our nieces and nephews to not do that, to be careful. And and here I am doing that. And I immediately apologized to the guy sitting in the passenger seat. And he said, don't worry about it. His companion who was sitting in the driver's seat was a white woman. And she said to me, why don't you go back to the country you were born in? And I said to her, I'm here already. I was born in Pittsburgh. And uh, we went to eat. And my partner the whole time said, let's hurry up. And I said, that's contradictory to the idea of a buffet. And she said, uh, you know, that woman may scratch your car or slash the tire. So we went out, we, we moved the car, um, nothing came of it. But it, it made me think about how racial epithets often are so common, we don't think of them as racism anymore. Racism doesn't have to be, you know, violent, uh, burning people at the uh, stake, but it can be of that variety. And during COVID, there was a lot of racism directed at uh Chinese people, and by association, some Asians, um, when our uh, former president referred to Kung Flu and other things, my mother actually thought that was funny, like Kung Fu dancing. And I said, it's not a compliment. I said, you know, if people really do think that China released this virus, first of all, they killed a lot of their own citizens. So that was not really well done. Second of all, it's not clear how this is a a uh, good way to take over the world or whatever it is that their goal is, it seems kind of uh, not sensible. And and I said, um, like you mentioned earlier, people's beliefs are often things they don't examine on a regular basis. And so they have these beliefs and these beliefs are maintained or 
in the back of their minds and they don't change unless there's some reason for them to change. So comedy is one way to sort of get you to change your beliefs, to laugh at something, to think about something. Another way is to interact with people who are different and realize they're not who you thought they were. Another is to work together, you know, on a team where you have to depend on the other person. One issue is whether these different strategies are ones you can just say voluntarily put out there, or could you require people um, to do that? That I think is a little bit more controversial. But I do think in some sense, competition is a great force, but in the other sense, cooperation is also necessary to solve some certainly environmental problems which involve a public bad and many different actors on a global scale. Yeah, you know, I think this is something that I, well, first of all, just to go to your earlier comment about the tendency to put your head down and just not not deal with it. I've heard that so many times, I'm going to do air quotes, people can't see me, but the good Asian, right? Just keep quiet, work hard, you know, be grateful. And I don't get to tell somebody that that if that's the way they want to be, that they can't be that way. But what I will say is I think that that in some ways makes you complicit in perpetuating the discrimination. And it may not be harmful if it happens once, you know, you can brush that off. But when it happens repeatedly, that starts to put the weight on somebody that they don't deserve, that is not their fault. And I think that's a real big problem. And then, you know, thinking about this consumerism, right? And, and we actually have just seen this in in the Supreme Court that made a ruling that you know businesses don't have to serve certain people. I I really struggle with this because I think about the back and forth, and I think, well, you know, we all do have choices, and we should be able to you know make the choices that fall in line with our beliefs as long as they're not harming someone else. However, and I and I hate using this, but it is a slippery slope in a lot of ways, right? Because it's saying, it's it's affirming that it's okay for you to discriminate or exclude somebody simply because they're not like you. And that's a very, very dangerous precedence to set, in my opinion. So I don't know. It's, it's definitely a challenge, challenging situation. In your research and your work, have you found any um, initiatives, policy changes, or laws that you feel like if we could if we could make certain changes here in our society that they might impact the outlook or improve the outlook of racism? Yeah. I mean, like you say, racism sometimes is very insidious. And um, when we were talking about humor, someone may make a racist joke and think it's funny uh, or make a joke about women and think it's okay. Now I think people are sensitized to the fact that that may not be okay. And I do think one sort of uh, remark is not the same thing as a daily sort of um, harassment of someone. I remember when I was a kid, my mother said to me, because I rode the subway to Horace Mann from the Upper East Side um, to uh, Riverdale. She goes, if you see someone or something happening, um, don't look up, keep on reading your calculus book. And if people come speak Mandarin to them, so they'll think you don't speak English. And I thought about that and I thought, but that's being a very irresponsible citizen. It's not being, I mean, maybe good for me to, to personally, but if we all behave that way, we live in a much poorer or worse society than if people, what is it we say now? See something, say something, right? And, and so I was never comfortable with that, but I understood why she would say that to her son. And 
oftentimes the problem with racism is it happens in other people's heads. So you don't know whether someone is doing this because they just don't like you personally or it's racist. And also, I'm not sure if that really matters, except from the point of view of law and saying this is a hate crime or not. And I talk in my book about whether hate crimes, you know, multiplying the punishment because there was an animus really is a deterrence. I don't know. I do think, as you say, beliefs are hard to change. People often can choose not to learn things. I'm not sure we can say sexism and racism are legal because how would I tell that except by your behavior. Presumably racists and sexists are now wise enough to conceal their behavior or find some other justification what they do. Not always. I remember I think some kids set another kid on fire in San Francisco because the kid was um, transgender or something. But that was a case of someone wanting to take credit for doing something. So they wanted to know the motivation, the world to know their motivation. I do think, as you point out, there are limited legal remedies, if you will. I think sometimes lawyers and law students tend to think, and law professors, that law is very powerful. It can be, but also for the average person, they don't even know what the law is. So it's not clear how it can matter. I think, I forget, I think Martin Luther King said this, which is, you can't legislate someone to like me, but you can legislate someone to not uh, hang me. And that goes some way towards him not hating me. I don't know. I think you can hate someone and not hang them because you're afraid of getting caught or uh, getting punished. But the real question is, how do you get people to change their mindsets about things through law or through policy? I think law is limited in its ability to do that. You know, you could force people to work together in teams or you could force, I mean, that's in some sense what integration uh, tries to accomplish. Even the recent Supreme Court case a pair of cases that was decided to say affirmative action is unconstitutional. The prior justification for affirmative action is actually very strange. It was that people of different races have different perspectives that they bring to, it's actually to everybody, but the focus was on white students. So having those students there was a benefit. Okay, um, that's a strange way to justify affirmative action. In some sense, I'm not sure affirmative action even helps the people who are the intended beneficiaries, right? Because if you say to someone, well, you got in because of affirmative action, that's not a compliment. And it's interesting to see what colleges do now. There is a case, I think, I'm not sure if it's going to the Supreme Court, if they're going to hear it, about Thomas Jefferson High School in Alexandria, Virginia, which is one of these magnet schools, I think, uh, similar to uh, Bronx Science or Stuyvesant, where um, you have to test to get in. And a lot of Asians, Chinese people, parents, will send their kids to these um, after-school or weekend programs where they take a lot of sample tests. I mean, these tests are not really a test of intelligence, whatever that means, because intelligence is multidimensional. These tests are a test of taking these tests. And if you take a lot of them, you'll get better. It's almost uh, a tautology to say that. Lowell High School in San Francisco, I think, was uh, is a similar place where it was like a huge percentage white and Asian, very small percentage Hispanic and black. Now, you could say part of the problem is structural or systemic racism, and um, the tests are not really about things that people who are not white or like white, close to white, um, have much contact with. I remember I was accused of being um, Twinkie, right? Yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. Again, not a compliment. And I thought to myself, well, that, that tastes good. Uh, so, uh, right? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think to really make a difference, we have to get something to happen earlier. 
earlier than college, earlier than high school, maybe I actually have toyed with the idea of writing a children's book because I think that's where you can have the most impact in children. I think Whitney Houston said this in a song, Children Are Our Future, which is sort of, again, another tautology, but it's really true. I don't know if I can convince a foaming in the mouth seizing racist anything today because they won't listen to me. But a child who, you know, we talked about children are not, not racist, sexist, or any kind of uh, discrimination because they want people to play with them. But if we say to children, you know, here's a friend who's uh, Indian, here's a friend who's black, you know, they have different color skin, but that's that doesn't tell you much about them. And there are people who are of any skin color who are good um, playmates and others who are not. I mean, somehow if we get to that, I think that's where we have to try to remedy the problem very early on. I'll say one more thing, which is, I think part of that is being mindful. There is evidence, experimental evidence, that people who are mindful not only have lower implicit attitude test scores, they actually discriminate. They're less racially prejudiced, which is what we really care about. They engage in less discriminatory actions. And I know for a fact, because I was interested in this, when mindfulness was taught in a San Diego public school in a, in a secular way, some of the parents objected because they said, this is just disguised Buddhism or disguised religion. I know also that uh, John Kabat-Zinn has a program about mindfulness-based stress reduction, originally designed for patients who were uh, suffering or experiencing terminal disease. I really think mindfulness, in at least from my personal experience, has helped me become less anxious as a person. My grandmother, my mother's mother, every day had these rosary beads and she would... Um, have a routine where she um, practiced a form of mindfulness. And it's not just Asians. Every culture, I think, has some degree of mindfulness. And it's a practice because you can be mindless. Um, and then also you can be mindful about things that don't matter, right? And so, but I, th I think if we teach people mindfulness early on, that can help them, but also that can have the byproduct of disrupting racism, sexism, all the other sort of isms that are negative stereotypes. We have been talking a lot on this show about meditation and mindfulness as a way to combat a lot of things. So I love that. And I, I always ask three final questions. And one of them is I ask the guests to share an action item. And I feel like that could be your action item. Basically, the question is, what, what's one small thing everyone listening can do today? Um, and for you, I was going to ask to disrupt racism in their own lives. So if you were to use mindfulness, and you don't have to, but if you were to use it, how can we define that and better understand it as individuals and apply it to this practice? Yeah. I mean, there are many different mindfulness practices, and a lot of them are free on the web. Like the UCLA Mindfulness Awareness Research Center has these free uh, mindfulness uh, practices, some three minutes, some half an hour. Um, I think the University of Missouri has some. But if you just Google mindfulness practice, you'll find these. And one of them I like is the loving kindness mindfulness, which is this idea that you say, um, I wish myself well, I wish my family well. It's sort of going in concentric circles outward. I wish um, someone who's been difficult in my life well. Um, I wish all of humanity. And you might go further and say, I wish all living beings, right? So I'm vegetarian for the reason that my grandmother was Buddhist and she was vegan. But I said to my partner, when I think about how animals are treated and mis mistreated and killed, she goes, yeah, but you don't have to think about it. I said, but you could also say that about racism or sexism. You don't have to think about it. If you don't think about anything, you can live in a, a wonderful world uh, that's not reality. So I think doing the loving kindness thing 
is one way. I mean, in fact, the U.S. military, the Army, actually taught mindfulness to snipers to get them to be better snipers. But some of the snipers said, why are we shooting people? Isn't there some other way to resolve this conflict? And, and that's an example, I think, of mindfulness actually making someone more virtuous or they think more than the person teaching them mindfulness wants them to think, right? Because there is some evidence that people who are taught mindfulness tend to become more ethical because they think about other people and how you may be hurting them. Um, I don't think mindfulness automatically leads you to become a saint, uh, but I think mindfulness is a tendency to make you consider other people, other species, um, and, and try not to do harm. So I think that's one thing to do. And practicing mindfulness, I mean, my partner often jokes that she has no time for mindfulness. I said, it doesn't have to be, a, it can be five minutes, three minutes. And then one day when she was doing grand rounds, um, someone came in to talk about mindfulness and um, avoiding medical errors. It was a family who uh, was wealthy and part of the settlement with the hospital was that they would have once a year someone to come in and talk about strategies to minimize medical mistakes. And this was a person, I forget their name right now, but people can um, search this on the web. He, he's from Canada. He talked about mindfulness and medical practice. There's another person who's written a book called Attending. It's a pun on both paying attention and being an attending physician. Part of what they had to do in this grand rounds is actually practice mindfulness. And my partner didn't. She goes, wow, the rest of the day, I felt much less stressed. And I think my interactions, the patients seemed to, to uh, they said to me, oh, there's something different about you, doctor, so-and-so. Um, and I said, so you're going to practice mindfulness every day? She goes, no, I still don't have time for it. And I said, that's funny because I said, you have to make time, but also it won't seem like a burden if you realize it makes you more patient. Um, I just came back from a trip to Disney World with my, one of my brothers and his two daughters. And I said, it was interesting watching him. Uh, whenever they said, hey, daddy, he would say, hey, what, what's up, sweetie? And I said, he is so patient and so loving and so kind in a way that I'm not sure I could be as a father. And I said, it, it takes a lot of patience to be a good father, a good husband, a good wife. You know, I said, patience is a, is a virtue, yeah? And mindfulness is a way to achieve that, um, to realize that people are imperfect, including yourself, and to be patient and have self-compassion and compassion for others. So I do think mindfulness is one non-legal thing that individuals can do. You don't have to you know, have a complicated technology. Anyone can practice mindfulness. And that hopefully will lead you to be less, less racist, less sexist, because you go, you know, this person may have a different color skin or different gender, but they're just like me. They're trying to figure out, you know, what to do in a world that's very uh, sometimes confusing. All right. I love it. All right. In your current phase of life, what are five words that you would use to describe yourself? Hmm. Current phase of life. So I'm, I'm curious. I'm more mindful and uh, I don't know what the last two would be, but I, I'll tell you this um, saying that I once heard, which is youth is a gift of nature and age is a work of art. And to that, I would add, we are all works in progress. So I hope that each day I can be a better person than the previous day. So I guess maybe I should say something like um, self-improving um, on a path towards I may never get there, but I would hope that I become a better person. And I remember my grandmother, my mother's mother, she used to say, you know, the point of education should be to teach you to become more virtuous. It's not about knowing stuff or especially now that you can look up stuff on your iPhone. But I think being more virtuous, being a better person, 
is really a goal that's uh, worthy of everyone's time and energy. All right. And then last but not least, where should everybody go to stay connected, learn more, and find your book to grab? Sure. Um, the book is at Amazon. It's at Barnes Nobles. It's at many sites. If they go to my um, publisher's website, Endeavor, E-N-D-E-A-V-O-R, Literary Press, they actually have links to Amazon, Barnes and & Nobles, and independent booksellers. And you can reach me at peter.huang, H-U-A-N-G, at symbol colorado.edu. And, you know, I'm happy to to exchange ideas with any of your listeners. I'm, I'm, I, I always am happy when I learn new stuff or new perspectives, because I think that's a great day that I know something more when I go to sleep than I did when I woke up. Love it. Well, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a really interesting conversation. I love it. And nobody can see this, but in the background, you have a bazillion books, which I also love. It's fantastic. So thank you very much for the work that you do for putting the effort into the book so that other people can kind of dive in as well. I very much appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. I appreciate your uh, questions, which are very thought provoking, especially the last three. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining on another episode of Diversity on Fire. I hope this helped you see a new perspective. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. Don't forget to check the show notes on how to connect and learn more about what Peter is doing. Find ways to connect with Diversity on Fire, all of our social media and all of the episodes at our website, which is diversityonfire.com. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that we express today, they're ours. We encourage you to do your own research, come to your own conclusions. If you enjoyed this episode. We very much appreciate your feedback. Head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. And until next week, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going.